You are listening to the Twibbly Podcast, or This Week Was Way Better Last Year. Comedy podcast looking back at This Week in History. You can find us on Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Podbean, or wherever you like to get your podcasts from. You can find us and or message us over on Facebook and Instagram using TWWWBLY. Back to Twibbly, or this week was way better last year. My name is Bill with one L. With me, Mr. Sandman, bring me a dream. Making the McLarges that I've ever seen. It's Mr. Jeff McLarges. <laughs> uh, that seems like an unusual introduction for me, but okay. <laughs> What's up? How you doing? I'm I'm baffled and frightened. No, I'm I'm good, man. It's, I'm, I'm it's, clutching onto my stuffed animals, <laughs> right? Uh, tugging on my ear. I don't know how to feel about that intro. <laughs> uh, I'm all right, man. I, you know, how are you doing? Don't ask. No, I'm only kidding. I'm fine. <laughs> what are you up to? <laughs> I had the opportunity uh, a couple weeks back. Well, they're about to participate in a Toastmasters division contest, and I won my division. So, okay, I did a humorous five to seven minute speech. And hold on, hold on. Back, back, back the truck up a little bit. Uh, sure, sure. Explain to audience, and by audience I mean me because I'm not entirely sure, <laughs> what exactly does Toastmasters entail? What is this? Okay, so Toastmasters is a public speaking club and like professional development organization that focuses on giving people a safe and comfortable place to practice public speaking skills to improve their ability to relate to other human beings. It's wow. really fun. I call that working at a haunted house, but okay. (laughs) It's fun. It teaches meeting facilitation, and there's some leadership elements to it and some entertainment elements to it. One of the things that I'll submit as I work my way through some of the programs is this podcast that uh, I host with you, Uh because this is the equivalent of doing several of their projects, is to be able to do a podcast. So Okay. Yeah, public speaking in the privacy of your own home. Yes. The club that I'm in is called the Pleasant Street Toastmasters, and there's like eight or nine of us right now, and we're in Division 12, and we competed against Division 19. I beat the folks in my division and won. I did a a speech about singing songs to my dog and almost burning my hand off with red-hot oatmeal. (laughs) So it was very funny. It sounds like a slightly more entertaining or slightly less lame version of the poetry slam things that used to go on like in the 90s. There's way more people who were not poetry people. Uh-huh. who are part of this. And a lot of the speeches are about like, this is what Toastmasters has taught me. Now I can talk in front of people and something. And and that seems to be a lot of sort of, that sort of self, self-aggrandizement self component. Uh-huh. But there there's a lot of good that, that comes out of being a better public speaker and being able to express yourself in a group and be confident when you talk to people that you might not know in a setting where you may not generally be comfortable about a topic that you may not be an expert in. And it really, really is a lot of fun. And the competitive nature of it makes it even more fun for somebody like me who likes, you know, being ranked for stuff that I that I put a lot of effort into. Oh. So, Okay. Like I made the reference before about like the poetry slam stuff from the 90s. Mm-hmm. So it's a lot of like 
self, like you said, self-congratulatory nature to it, where the 1990s poetry slam was just like, I'm so dark and, and depressed <laughs> and... I'd like to read you my my latest poem, but I can't because I erased it. <laughs> I really loved reading poetry. That was where I learned to speak in public. Was doing that in the in the late eighties and early nineties, and that was before slam poetry was a thing, where it was yeah. just structured readings. And then slam poetry came about, and that became competitive aspect of poetry. I was never really involved in other than to host a couple of poetry slams and earn the hatred of local slam poets because <laughs> I wasn't good at it. I have tons of stories from that time, but like I, I was kind of like the ant- antithesis of what they wanted. <laughs> mm-hmm. But I showed up anyway. All right. So anyway, this is going to be the week beginning, May the 23rd. But before we get started, I have my very popular and always well-received uh, trivia question for you. Excellent. I can't tell you this man's name because the answer of this the question is within this man's name. Okay. This- is it Mayor McCheese? Yeah. This, <laughs> good guess. Uh, no, rats. This man, first name Leon, he worked uh, with the Soviets. He was a, a Russian and Soviet inventor. And he invented the first burglar alarm or the signaling apparatus. But he also went on to invent a musical instrument. Which musical instrument was invented by the same man that invented the burglar alarm? You know what? I think I know this one. Okay. And uh, I'll, I'll tell you at the end. But this is the week beginning, May the 23rd, and... God, whose turn? Your turn? Your turn to start. Ha! May the 23rd, 1984. The second of the Indiana Jones films, or Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. Uh, directed by Steven Spielberg and produced by George Lucas. Opens in the U.S. And George Lucas threw us another curveball because... After Empire Strikes Back came out in 1980, everybody's like, Episode 5? What the hell are you talking about? Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, and a timeline, is the prequel to yes. the Raiders of the Lost Ark. And the events in Temple of Doom take place before the Raiders of the Lost Ark. Of the three, and as much as I like Raiders of the Lost Ark, the one that I saw the most times and had the most fun at was Temple of Doom. Kalima! The one that I quote more often. <laughs> the one that I quote most often is that one. If someone asks what for dinner, chilled monkey braids, you know? Yeah. Uh, or, you know, I start to sing the Molaram song, or because I have a heart condition, I sometimes pretend I'm pulling my heart out and showing it to my kids when they make me irritated. Um, <laughs> this one's been around for a long time in our vernacular. And when time is short, when we got to, like, motor on and get something done, the first thing that comes to mind is, no time for love, Dr. Jones. <laughs> and that usually gets said by one of us to get ourselves moving. It is a great movie. All of the, all the movie, well, you can make an argument, but most of the movies in the Indiana Jones series of movies are very, very, uh, very good. I like this one a lot. I really, really like the minecart sequence. Yes. And, I uh, love the practical effects in that one, too, because there's a bunch of miniature shots that, are, that they used. Yes. Do some of that that are like you can spot them now because of digital technology and how clear the like the remastered films are. Yeah. You have to like watch a special feature like on HBO about how those were made. See how they did that. It was so awesome. Yeah. First of all, you go to the movie theater and you see it. You know, you're like, what, 13, 14, 15 years old. You're not going, oh, look, there's some practical effects. You don't even think about that. You're just eating your popcorn and watching a movie. And then right. you rent it on VHS, you know, whenever you're in high school, and VHS quality is like the equivalent of nothing. <laughs> VHS is like UHF. 
Yeah. So uh, that's the uh, one OP. thing about like you know getting into DVD, Blu-rays, and now 4K. It's like, man, you watch older movies and you see everything. Gee, yes. I don't find that it spoils it though. No, it's, Think, it's thinking fun. about that. Yeah, you know. Uh, one more thing about the Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, because it was so gory with the whole, you know, ripping the heart out of the, you know, still beating heart out of the guy's chest, and the monkey brains and all the snakes and the bugs and all that stuff. Parents were, you know, bringing their kids because it was rated PG, and they're coming out of there just like terrified and horrified. Uh, so that got the ball rolling. Ha ha. Raiders reference. That got the ball rolling to uh, for the, the new rating, PG-13, only like the year after, I think. Yeah, it did. It prompted the creation of the PG-13 rating because, you know, parents were strongly cautioned that some of the imagery in this film may be too extreme for their children. And uh, you can make the argument that, you know, it was unnecessary and... And now sort of R-rated movies are a thing of the past, so it seems to have kind of absorbed and eaten up that whole, like, adult film. Adult film, but not adult film. Right. <laughs> it's part of the spectrum. I'll always be bummed that that was an, uh, an impact of Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, but it doesn't limit my enjoyment of the film itself. Yeah, it doesn't bother me. I was older than 13 when it came out anyway, so... All right, uh, moving on to May the 24th of 1954. Your friends and mine over at IBM announced the vacuum tube electronic brain, so computer essentially, uh, that could perform 10 million operations in an hour. Now, that sounds like a lot, but it's not. Not at all. Not by today's standards. It's not. How are today's standards measured? Uh, today's standards are measured in what we would refer to as, sounds like something you don't want happen to you on prom night, a gigaflop. <laughs> so going by the length of the, the, the what the suffix generally means, that's that's got to be somewhere around um, like 10 million, 10 million somethings, 10 million operations, right? Uh, a gigaflop is a unit of computing speed equal to 1 billion, that's with a B, Floating point operations per second. Wouldn't it be? Oof. Yeah. So 1 billion floating point operations per second, and there's 60 seconds in a minute, and there's 60. Well, this is like how many? Wait, what was the uh, right. 10, op, 10 million operations per hour? 60 minutes at 60 all seconds right, each. Before you do all the math, million... it, is doing, it is doing 100 times the amount of what that computer could do in an hour. One gigaflop happens every second, all right? And now, yes. your computer, you were saying, how many gigaflops does it do in a second? So I looked up, I have a Ryzen 3600X something, my desktop that I, we're recording this podcast on. And mine does 459.1 <laughs> gigaflops. Per, mi- uh, per minute. Per minute, yeah. So, oh, well, so I'm, I'm not going to pull apart the math, but that would that's a lot compared to that vacuum tube thing there, yeah. It's, that's too much. It's too many numbers. That's like the lady who calculated pi to 10 trillion numbers or something. It's too much, too much numbers. And what's the rate of time it takes for something to either double in size or half in size? So it's, in computing, it's called Moore's Law. And that law is that computing yeah. power will double every 18 months. And the power requirements for that doubling will decrease by 50% every 18 months. That tends to be the law. So I'm just going to go in processor numbers so we don't have to start doing chism bop here. But going from like a 500 megahertz Pentium 2 processor to a 1 gigahertz 
Pentium 3 processor takes 18 months. Doubles the power, reduces the die size by half, reduces the power requirements, the power of the chip by half, and it takes about 18 months. And then to get 2 gigahertz takes about 18 months. To get 4 gigahertz takes about 18 months. Exponential number of functions that can be done on those chips also increases that every 18 months. So that brand new computer that you just bought is going to be obsolete by half in a year and a half. Yes. Essentially, yeah. Yes, unless it's a Mac and then it's every year. <laughs> but as soon as you turn that thing on, when you take it out of the box, it's like, there's already a right, faster right. one that they're unveiling at the store. You bought the one that you have now. Yeah, I don't keep up with tech like that. I, whenever I go and I buy cell phones, they're always like two years out of date. Yeah. It's, I, don't, it's, I don't need the... I'm just looking at Facebook like everybody else. Look, man, I still use mine to make phone calls. Like, does this, does this new phone do the phone call thing? <laughs> yeah, that's sort of how I approach it when I'm there, too. <laughs> does this phone do the phone call thing? Right. I don't know. We're going to have to look. Let me talk to a manager. All right, what do we got for the 25th? The uh, 25th is one of our favorite things. It's a stupid holiday. In this case, it is International Towel Day. So this is the, the day for fans of Douglas Adams' increasingly inaccurately named Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy trilogy to celebrate the usefulness and or necessity of always knowing where your towel is or keeping a towel nearby. Because as we know from those books, they are the premier do-all tool that a person to survive needs in the vastness of the universe. That's a man who really knows where his towel is. Right. Yep. Yeah, I've been a fan of the Hitchhiker's book since I was first introduced to them. Probably, I think around 81, 82, somewhere around there. And I remember my friend Carolyn, who lived backyard to me, uh, she had a very eccentric cousin. Mm -hmm. And she introduced us to the Hitchhiker's Guide. And I've never really been an avid reader. I do much better with audiobooks. Mm -hmm. So we had score the audiobooks of that too and man i've listened to those over and over and over and over again and this very repeatable you know very easy to go back and read again or or listen to again they have a lot of replay value that's what I'm the, the first two books especially those are the two that i tend to go back and read the most often when i when i find myself mm -hmm. reading them if i start reading the first one i know i'll read all of the first two just by virtue of how well they fit together and it it's such a clear continuation of the first story to the second. Yeah, that's because it was all one story. It was all one story one time, yes. You know, I love the third book. Uh, Life, the Universe, and Everything is my favorite out of the series. Yeah, that one's a good standalone piece, and it's longer than – it's probably longer than the first two combined, now that I think about it. Yeah, the, the Cricket Wars. The Cricket yes, Wars, yeah, excellent. which was a really good premise. But jumping back to the towel component, like I, I should take this time knowing that my mother, my sainted mother, listens to this podcast every week. Uh, hi, Mom. I apologize as an adult. Hi, Mrs. McLarge. <laughs> for the approximate 4 million towels I used as a teenager. I would take a shower every day, sometimes twice a day because I worked in a restaurant, and just leave the towels on the floor. And my mom would pick them up and wash them. And she did it like it was part of being a mom. And I didn't realize that wasn't part of anybody's job that should have ever been until I was a grown-up. And I was like, where, where the hell did all these towels come from? Why are there so many wet towels around? Well, dumb dumb, it's because you keep washing yourself and throwing them on the floor. Now you have to wash them. And I mostly, felt terrible. Mostly me, yeah. Yeah, this is all my fault. So I, I caught when I first moved out of my house, I called mom. I was like, I'm so sorry. And I apologized yeah. to her for leaving towels around for all those years. And she's like, I don't worry about it. I'm like, no, I'm going to worry about it until the day I die. I recently uh, discovered that electric dryers use a hell of a lot of electricity. <laughs> because um, my electric bill a couple of months ago was super high. As an experiment, I stopped using the dryer to dry my clothes, just started hanging them up. You know, I got some clotheslines downstairs and stuff like that. And I was saving like $30 a month yeah. just by not using the dryer. 
So that's what I do now. The only bad part about that is that towels, when they air dry like that, mm-hmm. they basically are like pieces of plywood. Yeah, they you could just like lean them up against the wall. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, they definitely do get more stiff. Dryers are not right. cheap. Energy Star is a sticker you just never find on an electric dryer. You know? <laughs> to make my towels fluffy. To make the towels fluffy. You want fluffy towels, right? That's why we need a nuclear reactor in town. All right, moving on to, yeah, you never see solar powered dryers. They just don't exist. No, the sun isn't big enough. <laughs> All right, you want a solar powered dryer? Buy a clothesline. All right. Moving on to the 26th, 1992, the Dodge Viper rolls off the assembly line for the first time. And I am astounded to read that this is an actual real car and not just something that you buy in Gran Turismo 7. Yeah, it was it was Dodge's like, uh, I'm not sure how to describe it other than attempt to like be like a steroid infused Corvette fighter. So it's this monster 10 okay. cylinder beast of an engine. 10? Yeah, 10. Oh, yeah. V10. It drinks gas like dryers drink electricity. It's oh, it's terrible. It's, you look at the car, and it's already down a, a gallon of gas. Um, <laughs> it doesn't even have to be running. But they're but at the time, in 92, when they came out, they were fast as all get out. They could do like 0 to 60 in four seconds, which is a little bit faster than my Mazda 3 is now. But, they, <laughs> but it was wicked fast when it came out in 1992. And it right. was really expensive and was a was like dodge's premier car you know what now that i think about it i did see one in person in 1997 Mm -hmm. i was in las vegas and somebody was having their car like valeted and they wanted to like you know swing their dick around i guess and it was a dodge viper i think i took a picture of it they made so few of them each year that they held their value well uh-huh. There was a time that Dodge was going to spin off. I think when Solantis owned them, they were going to spin Viper off as a brand. And then somebody came to their senses and, and said like, dude, we sell 4,000 of these a year. We can't be a brand. That's not enough cars. Right. But they definitely competed in that weird like exotic slash supercar field where Ferrari hangs around and Lamborghini hangs around and high-end Corvettes hang around. And that's sort of the pantheon where it lives. Only it's an American car. So it comes with American car sort of issues like... Because it's made by one of the big three, there are some parts on the inside that are... It's not like a handmade Ferrari where a bunch of Italian craftsmen are like putting the dash together on a Sunday. <laughs> yeah. It goes through on the same line that the, you know, the Dodge Dodge Avenger comes off of. <laughs> the Dodge Caravan, yeah. yeah. Yeah, the Dodge Caravan. Like, is this a minivan or the... Vi- oh, the Viper's coming. I got the wrong wrenches, you know? <laughs> so. I got to put the Vipers on the windshield. <laughs> All right, what do we got for the 27th? May 27th, 1969, Walt Disney World begins constructing the parks at Bay Lake and Lake Buena Vista, Florida. Disney was super duper fed up with all the restaurants and advertising and everything around Disneyland in California. Yep. And decided to make his own sort of town, his own town slash amusement park. So he bought a ton of land so he could control all of the other aspects around the park that he didn't have control of in Southern California. He actually died. Like, like, I mean, he bought the land, but uh, the construction didn't begin until 1969. He died in 1966. So he just had like like, all this land with nothing going on. He had a lot of things going. Well, I mean, you don't just buy the land and then start digging, you know? Right. So, but he had a lot of plans. If you ever read like what his first ideas were for Epcot Center, 
It is like George Orwell wrote it almost. Planet is like a people live in that town, right? Isn't that yes. what this thing? Like you live in Epcot. Like I don't know if you work at the park, but you like there are rules you have to live by, like a neighborhood association given to you by a benevolent dictator. You were, yeah, you yeah. were gonna live live and work like you never had to leave the park. You never had to leave. I don't know. There was some sort of like weird thing that people were like about voting and stuff it's like yeah you, you can't do you're you're trying to secede from the union which you cannot do right. <laughs> you know <laughs> disney world i haven't been in probably 20 or more years i think the last time i went was 2000 and all that i've been meaning to get back it's just that it's like moore's law the price goes up you know doubles every 18 months basically right 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 my daughter went during april vacation with uh-huh. some of her friends or her friend's family she- Came back with some sunburnage and yep. uh, and some tchotchkes. I mean, it's it's recovered very well, I think, from the pandemic. She said it was really busy. And, and she also came back with, like, debt to rival your mortgage. Yeah. yeah, she paid herself. She earned the money to go working. She works for, uh, I'm not going to name the company because they're not a sponsor of ours. She work, works almost full time and saved her money and saved her money to buy a ticket and, and pay for her own way. So I, 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 you can't say no to that as a father. Right, Because right. <laughs> as a father, it's like, are well, you going to pay for it? And she goes, yeah. And you go like, well, then I, I guess you can have that. <laughs> then they go away and they do whatever that thing is because I don't have to pay for it. At that point, my all my radar goes off. Like, fine, I'm going back to what I was doing. All right. So May 28th, 1959. It sounds darker than what it is. Okay. Uh, I like dark that sounds first, darker than what it is. The first monkey to survive space flight. Ooh. <laughs> yep. I, the U.S. launches two monkeys, Abel and Baker. Baker was a female squirrel monkey. And Abel was a female something I can't quite pronounce. Ah. It's got an R in it. Rhesus? Uh, anyway, God. Was it Rhesus? R-H-E-S-U-S? Yeah, it is Rhesus. Oh. Rhesus. And it came back Rocky. whole? It didn't come back as Rhesus pieces? <laughs> <laughs> no, no. They, they both recovered alive. Oh. Uh, however, yep, they both came back alive. However, Abel died four days later. During surgery to remove a test probe that was underneath her skin. Oh. Oh, that sucks. You made it back. All we got to do is take out the RFID chip. (laughs) Get the saw. Poor things. I was... Yeah. <laughs> right, exactly. I thought when we started to talk about this story that this was like the one that we talked about, I don't know, a couple months back with the chimpanzee that was trained to like to step on a pedal by getting pieces of fruit. And you're like, no, no, these are actual yeah. little monkeys. And I was like, oh, okay. That was a chimpanzee. These are monkeys. Up, yeah. up um, until this point, I think everything from either here in the U.S. or in the Soviet Union that got shot into space came back. Uh, well, they should have sent some potatoes up with it because it came back. <laughs> it didn't come back alive and it came back well done. It turns out the monkey meat is very tough. Well, yeah. next time we will smear inside suit. We will put in A1 steak sauce on... <laughs> Uh, they reached an altitude of over 300 miles and uh, speeds of over 10,000 miles an hour. You can just see the little monkey faces just like, ah! <laughs> that should have been the opening scene to the Planet of the Apes, right? Yep. That's how you end up with Ape World. It's like you just like see their faces. Like whenever you see the like the astronauts like in the centrifuge with their faces just like pulled back. Anyway, uh, they were up there for only like 15 minutes, but I mean. Well, I mean, 15 minutes at 10,000 miles an hour is pretty goddamn fast. Yeah, exactly. I, I got a drone that the battery lasts like 15 minutes. I'm all excited about that. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, they were featured on the cover of Life magazine in 1959. And Miss Baker went on to become a national celebrity. I guess now she would have her own TikTok. But, um, like, what did they give her? The anchor desk at ABC News? <laughs> <laughs> 
And here comes Miss Baker down the red carpet. What are you wearing? Throws feces at the freaking camera. Uh, anyway, uh, she died at the age of 27 in 1984. She was the oldest living squirrel monkey. I guess they keep track of that sort of a thing. Right. Well, I, I don't. I think they only do the squirrel monkey census every 30 years. So. <laughs> That's a great story. It's so funny that they ended up on the cover of Life magazine. I wonder if they just put, like, they took one picture of Abel in the suit and then another picture of Abel in the other suit and composited them together. Because, like, weren't there two monkeys? Uh, Shut up. (laughs) Bring one of the other monkeys in here. When reached for comment, Miss Baker said, Au, au. All right, uh, we move on from monkeys to uh, go on uh, May 29th. May 29th, 1987. Michael Jackson, man clearly with too much wealth, attempts to buy the skeleton of Joseph Merrick, known to throughout the world as the Elephant Man, from a hospital in London, who tells him to go pound sand <laughs> or go find someone else's skeleton to buy, and they will not sell it to him. You know, here's an argument that we bring up uh, in this country quite often. At what point is too much goddamn money? Right. You know, I mean, I understand, you know, they earned every penny that he ever made. Oh, yeah. That's fine. But, man, when you don't know what to spend your money on, you're like, you know, I'd really like to buy the bones of the, the elephant man. I, I think that's something I'd like to purchase. It's like, all right, dude, there are so many charities that need your money right. that you can go the day without buying the elephant man's bones. Matter of fact, whatever you were willing to spend on the elephant man – and they didn't let you buy something nice for somebody else, for Christ's sake. It makes me wonder, like, at the hospital where the bones were kept, were they, like, on display? Like, so you could be like, oh, that's an interesting skeleton. Where is that from? <laughs> like, Joseph Merrick, the elephant man. Oh, I'd like to buy that. You know, I bought all of the Beatles music. No, Michael, it's not for sale. And they have to go and put a, like, a not for sale sign on the, on the front of the display. And then a picture of Michael Jackson, like, if you see this man, shoo him away. I don't know. I, there's, there's a lot to be said about Michael Jackson and all of it's weird. <laughs> yeah. All right. Let's get on to the celebrity birthdays. Oh, awesome. May 23rd, 1958, uh, American comedian and guy who put Cleveland on the map, Drew Carey. Oh. He does like a rock and roll DJ show on satellite radio. Oh, does he? Yeah, it, and it's so good. He He plays some common stuff, but he does a bunch of underground deep cuts from records yep. and can talk about the records with authority and his presence on the radio is it's like you and i are sitting down listening to records and we're talking about the music that we're putting on that's how yeah. comfortable it is to listen to his show it's so good and so much fun and it's a great program to check out if you can find your way to it yep uh started out doing stand-up comedy uh went on to he had his own sitcom for a little while and then he was he took over for Bob Barker on The Price is Right. There's a big period in between there where his sitcom yeah. ended and he was doing Whose Line Is It Anyway as the host. That's right. That's right. Before he was dead. I like Drew Carey a lot. I can't imagine somebody not liking the guy. He's got a very likable you know, personality to him. And he also has that perfect level of celebrity where everybody knows who he is. He's not paparazzi fodder. Do you have like a favorite yeah. bit from his stand-up? Do you have a favorite joke of his? Oddly enough, yes. This is going to send the beep level flying on this podcast. He had this gag that he used to do with one of his friends that he was talking about on like one of his audio books called the Big Dick Contest. I play that game with my friend Matt at the Haunted House. Like We've been doing it back and forth for like, the, like 10 years or more now where 
the thing is, like, you would say, my dick is so big, and then you just say something ridiculous, like, my dick is so big, it has an elbow. My dick is so big, it only plays stadiums. That, you know, that sort of a thing. And one of the ones that Drew Carey said was, my dick is so big, I'm already f***ing somebody tomorrow. <laughs> and that one just stuck out in my mind as being, like, hilarious that's that's my favorite Drew for Gary me joke. it was on one of his specials and he was talking about how because of the sitcom and how much how successful his stand-up tour had been he had way more money than he knew what to do with a la michael jackson right he doesn't go off to buy the the elephant man skeleton what he says is he's like I, yeah i drive around and like i find a really terrible rainy night where there's thunder and lightning and it's windy and it's awful i run a stop sign so the cop will pull me over <laughs> so the guy the cop pulls me over goes you know why I pulled you over? And I roll the window down really slowly as he's standing there in the pouring rain and go, yeah, you know why I ran the stop sign? Because I've got nothing to do with my money. I might as well spend it on tickets, you know, <laughs> tormenting the police. I thought that was really funny. All right, moving on to the 24th. May 24th, 1945, uh, one-time wife and love of Elvis Presley and also one-time love of fictional Frank Drebin of the police squad, Priscilla Presley. I love the police squad movies and she was like so perfect in those movies and to the best of my knowledge, is that the only three movies she ever made? No, she was in Ford Fairlane. She was the, the person who hired Ford oh, Fairlane, remember? Sh- You're right. I'm very rich. Nothing embarrasses right, me. Right, exactly. When she's drinking the remains of the smoothie out of the glass that he just drank. Yeah. Yes, that she was great in that movie. She, and she, yeah. she was better than the rest of the content in that movie, and I don't hate that movie or anything, <laughs> but she was, she was exceptionally good at that, and definitely a good sport with the character that she was given to play. Definitely her best roles are the ones where she is in the Naked Gun Police Squad movies, because she is so funny. She is so funny as the straight man to Frank Drebin, who is funny as a straight man. Uh, right. the, they are endlessly entertaining. Oh, and also, I forgot about this. She used to be on the television show Dallas. That was a grown-up show, so I never watched that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> my mom was like, I'm watching my nighttime stories. And I'm like, I'm just going to leave the pile of towels on the floor and I'm going to bed. All right. May 25th, 1973, American comedian Dimitri Martin. He had a show on Comedy Central, right? Yeah, a very, very funny show. Uh, H. John Benjamin was on that show with him, too. As a matter of fact, that's where I first got introduced to him. Oh, okay. There was that time on Comedy Central where there were a bunch of younger guys like Jeselnik and him and a couple of others that had shows that ran like not back to back, but on every other day or something for a while that were all sketch uh, sketch and stand-up type shows. Yeah, Amy Schumer had her own show too, right? Yeah. And uh, yeah, it was like a mixture of like sketches and stand-up comedy. I like Dimitri Martin. He's got that whole in the vein of Stephen Wright and Mitch Hedberg, like non sequiturs. Where he just kind of just comes out with like random thoughts and stuff. I know you, you. I watched the sketch that you'd shown me of his, where he was like an introverted guy trying to get out of a like a backyard party, and someone was just talking to him, and he just slowly walks away and starts climbing a tree, and then over the fence to get out of the backyard. And it was really <laughs> yeah. funny, like this almost silent performance. He's a funny dude, and for yeah. that whole group that came out, I was surprised that they they never got scooped up by like Saturday Night Live or Ma- at the time Mad oh, TV, sure, yeah. you know, and and were able to go off and make a and make it without having that springboard to jump into the to the zeitgeist. I think that's probably to Comedy Central's benefit that he is one of those guys that those young guys that are really good. All right, next up, uh, May twenty sixth, eighteen, going all the way back now, eighteen eighty six. Ah, young first, yes, the first like real film superstar who ushered in synchronized sound. Al Jolson, who was a stage performer, burlesque guy. He was the star of the first talkie, the first talking movie, The Jazz Singer. Yes, and and uh, they synchronized one song in that. 
with him him yeah. singing which is super problematic yes. we're not going to talk about that aspect of it or the fact yep. that his his like again this is a, a time when entertainment history when it was okay so eh, you know your mileage may vary it's 100 some odd years ago more than 100 years ago now that i think about it for for that movie yeah but set the stage for comedians and singers who would usher in the era of synchronized sound in motion picture. When they did the jazz singer, it, they played a long playing record along that was synchronized with certain frames of the film. And that's how it was. It had to be manually synchronized up front and then started at the right time by a human. And then later, the technology was such that you could synchronize all of the voice with all of the film frames. And then if the guy was like asleep at the wheel and put the record on late, then it looked like a, a Japanese... Uh, <laughs> yeah, yes, like a, like a Godzilla movie. Or worse, like, you know, you end up with the Millie Vanilli thing where the record starts to skip, which had happened, <laughs> you know, and poor Al, I can't do the song because nah, that's problematic. That's problematic. <laughs> All right. Uh, moving on to May 27th, 1911, American horror actor Vincent Price. He was like in a ton of horror movies, you know, like the, the original House of Wax. The original Fly, The Last Man on Earth, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And he was also Egghead on the Batman television yes. yes, series. He never, you know, he, I don't think he ever turned a script rip down. And even in films that were uh, underfunded, is a good way to describe it, like some of Corman's stuff, he was still compelling yep. to watch and always gave a great performance. Yes. I met him once. Did you? I, yeah, I met him at, in, the, in the office at like Bristol Community College when I was a student there. He was coming into... He was like doing a thing, like a, a show or something in the theater. I don't know. I wasn't part of the college community at, at that BCC, time. BCC, that must have been their whole budget for the year. Yeah, and, and he was in the office with people who were giving him a tour. And, I, and he walked past. I'm like, hey, you're Vincent Price. And he goes, yes, yes, I am. And I'm like, wow, <laughs> what class is he in? Can I be in that class too? And uh, no, I couldn't. His last uh, film appearance was in Edward Scissorhands. He played Edward's dad. Yeah. Yep. Um. His role or his persona later on in life was like, you know, just somebody that loved horror. Like whenever he was on The Muppet Show, all of his, everything was very macabre around him. Yes. Yes. Interesting man. I like that guy. All right. Very interesting. May 28th, 1967, uh, American actress Kari Wurr made the jump from MTV as a sort of a comedic actress on their game shows into feature films. And now does a ton of Uh, voiceover work. She was the, like, eye candy, I guess you could say, on that uh, game show, Remote Control. Yes. Uh, from, like, the second or third season forward, because they had somebody different at the beginning, a girl named Marisol. That's right. I like Marisol. Yeah, I that's like right. I like Marisol. Uh, but Kari, Kari was uh, an attractive young lady as well. Not a bad actress by any stretch of the imagination. Ended up in sort of lower-budget genre films, made her debut in Thinner, based on a Stephen King slash Richard Bachman novel. Oh, that's right. That was her. She played the Carney girl that was really, really good at the slingshot. Yes. That's right, yeah. Uh, I remember seeing her uh, in Eight-Legged Freaks, that 1950s sort of throwback style monster movie with uh, Arquette, their David Arquette in it. Oh, oh, all right, yeah. And ScarJo, Scarlett Johansson's first movie. Oh, right, okay. i never seen that. I remember, I remember hearing about it. It's really yeah. funny. It's well worth a watch. Very good monster yep. movie. Yep, hate when this happens. So with further research, we find out that Kari Wurr's birthday is actually April 28th, not May 28th. Sorry about that. But if your birthday is May 28th and you're trying to figure out, well, who do I share my birthday with? How about we go with Australian pop singer Kylie Minogue, born in 1968. Sorry, guys. And wrapping up the birthdays, May the 29th, 1953... I don't even know how I want to introduce this guy. 
Uh, everybody from like the millennials are going to know him as their favorite composer. Uh, I know him because I used to love Oingo Boingo, Mr. Danny Elfman. The man who literally composed every single TV or film theme song for like seven years, starting in 1990. Yeah, you can't swing a dead cat without hitting like his compositions and stuff. It's really funny because I liked Oingo Boingo. I've seen Oingo Boingo live. And whenever my millennial friends will talk about Danny Elfman, I'll make mention that I, I saw Oingo Boingo live. They're like, the gaze upon me like I'm some sort of a god. You know, it's like, yeah, and there was like maybe 75 people there. They, they really didn't go out on a strong note, so to speak. All of his compositions, I, when I think of Danny Elfman, I hear that like sort of composition style that waves yeah. of sound. And that. Yeah, he has a, he's very stylized. Yeah. You can spot his stuff very quickly. If you listen to scores, like his scores are, they stand out. And if you're not listening carefully, you might hear. The worst song ever. All right, Jeff, it is your turn to pick our contender or contenders. Contenders, yeah. For the worst song ever this week, what do we have? Okay, now it's no secret to anyone who knows me that I am a lifelong fan of Iron Maiden. I love Iron Maiden. I have all the records. I even like the Blaze Bailey records. I am a big Iron Maiden fan myself. I can't say that I have all of their records, but I have a lot, and I also have Spotify. Ergo, I have all of their records. Even on Iron Maiden's records, they're what are considered sometimes their best records, like Peace of Mind or the one I'll talk about uh, at that other end of this part, The Final Frontier. There are songs buried amongst all of these gems, like Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner, Alexander the Great, Hallowed Be Thy Name, Die With Your Boots On, Two Minutes to Midnight, Aces High, Power Slave, Somewhere in Time, Wasted Years, There's Quest for Fire, which took three members of Iron Maiden to write, and it's, <laughs> it's, it's like Steve Harris said, Oi, I watched this caveman movie, <laughs> and I still have the box from the video store. Look, Listen to the description as I read it to you. And as he starts to read it to them, Adrian Smith starts to play guitar. And that's the first recording, I think, of Quest for Fire. Because it sounds like, lyrically, it is the back of the VHS tape from the video rental store. Here's the clip. So, so, so Iron Maiden's a part of Iron Maiden's shtick, and I, I don't, I don't say shtick in a bad way. Shtick is like a routine that you stick with that you're known for, right? Yep. Is that they sing about history, they sing about mythology, they sing about literature, they sing about stuff that is outside the realm of what's typically sung about in rock and roll, and in a lot of cases in heavy metal. So there's a lot of accuracy that goes into the stuff that they write. Alexander the Great, historically accurate. Yep. Quest for Fire. Starts with the line, in the time that the dinosaurs walked the earth. And it's a song about cave people trying to yeah. keep, trying to have fire. <laughs> so cave people and dinosaurs did not live within 200 million years of one another. And yeah. that's the opening line to the song. 
in a time roughly 65 million years after dinosaurs walked the earth. It just doesn't, <laughs> it doesn't, have it doesn't the same roll off the to tongue. It, yeah. Yeah. No, yeah. No. This is one of those songs there. Like, I remember back in the like late 80s and early 90s, I was like really, really into the Misfits. And there was a student at work that would hear me talk about them and see me wear their shirts and all that. And he didn't know. He was more of a rap guy. He's like, can you bring me in like one of their CDs so I can hear what these guys sound like? I was like, yeah, sure. So I, I bring in Collection 2. He brings it back in the next day just like shaking his head. He goes, I heard one song and shut it off. I was like, what song did you play? He's like, Rat Fink. I was like, oh my God. If you're going to pick one song, you pick this one. That's like, like the needle in the haystack where you pick the one song that is embarrassing in their catalog kind of deal. And that's what Quest for Fire is. If I was trying to explain to somebody that had never heard Iron Maiden how awesome I think Iron Maiden is, and they're like, oh, well, I'll just pick a song at random here. Oh, Quest for Fire. That sounds like a, a pretty wild thing to listen to. And they're like, what a time! I think dinosaurs walk the earth! They're like, there goes the needle across the record. Take this and shove it up your ass. I haven't gone back to look to see what their set lists have been like. Like, they do the Legacy of the Beast tour, so they do a ton of old songs. I saw one of those shows. Okay, I saw them on the Legacy of the Beast tour a couple of years ago, and I'll tell you, Quest for Fire was not on the set list. What I was going to suggest is that the one time this song has been played live, it was in the studio when it was recorded, and it was it's never been played since. <laughs> There's one other kind of dog on that record, which is the To Tame a Land song, which, which gives you a vocabulary test to listen to it. So you got to figure out what the hell a gomjabar is and what who's the Kwisatz Haderach and what, what the hell does the words mean? And then you realize that you're you're learning about the novel Dune. Anyway, again, Iron Maiden's worst songs we're talking about tonight are better than 99% of other metal bands' best songs. That I just love them. <laughs> and I can't help singing along with Quest for Fire when it comes on, even the, if I don't catch myself skipping it. But I don't always do that. Sometimes I catch myself singing it like, well, I'm already this far in. I might as well finish the chorus. And then Maiden goes through like a couple of stages, right? So they, they do like they have their, their early years that most people remember with the number of the beast, peace of mind, power slave. Yeah. The, the, the golden era, the, the class, yeah. The, the golden era, the classic years, right? The, f the first, like, five records with Bruce Dickinson on them. And then there's a period where Bruce Dickinson was like, screw you guys, I'm going to go be a pilot. And he left and he made solo records and Adrian Smith took off. And then they recombobulated the band a couple of records later after the Blaze Bailey years and they put out a bunch of really good records. They're, they get more and more proggy as the records go on. So, you know, they're already kind of known for doing seven-minute songs to close out albums. Now it's seven-minute songs to open albums and 14-minute songs to close out albums. Right. And as you get closer to today, they released an album called The Final Frontier. Every song on that record, if you like Iron Maiden, is gold. Except yes. for one. <laughs> I listened to this album today. I had never heard this album. I, I, um, I'm a fan of the classic Iron Maiden, and there's a couple of new stuff that I have, but I had never heard this Final Frontier album. Because you had brought up this song that you're about to bring up, uh, I had listened to it today, and I was like, this album's great. This sounds like Iron Maiden's greatest hits with different words. Yeah, it's a fantastic record. It's all over the place, music. It's got prog rock stuff. It's got heavy, heavy stuff. It's got a couple of shorter singles, one of which is called Coming Home. Let's play a clip, and then I'll explain what the song is about. When I stand before you Of the towns become the ghosts of time. 
I had to pick 30 seconds to play, and I played 30 of the ridiculous seconds. Uh, That's any but, 30 seconds in no, this song. No, let me tell you. This song starts off strong. Because you were like, oh my God, this song coming home. This is going to be one of our worst song ever today. And I listened to it, and I was like, what's he talking about? This song is great. And then you could just hear like a, a car hitting a wall, just like, oh, this is weird. And like, I, I want to use the word aeroerotic, if that's. <laughs> <laughs> that's a good description. Yeah. You realize a couple of verses in that this is very, this is structured like a ballad. This is the kind of ballad that Winger would sing, kind of, right? A ballad that. You might hear on a Motley Crue record. Yeah, instead of, but instead of being about an underage girl, it's about an airplane. Right. And you realize that Bruce Dickinson is singing a love song to Ed Force One, the 767 that they flew around on and did a world tour in. And it's obvious that he's singing about being inside the the plane and not, we're not going to tell anybody where we've been or what we've... It's this weird-ass love song to uh, the jet. No matter how much it makes you think like this is like the Wasted Years thing, right? Adrian Smith's Wasted Years, which is all about touring. It's bloody well not. This is about being on the plane <laughs> by yourself. And every time I hear this song, and I can't help singing along with it when I hear it because I I think the, musically it's, the, it's one of the strongest tracks on this great record. But I can't stop laughing because all I can picture is like, is Bruce Dickinson like ripping off his pilot's uniform and rolling around naked in the cockpit rubbing himself on gauges and it's just ridiculous and it's glorious and terrible all at the same time it makes you wonder that nobody in the band has like veto power over the lyrics like yeah how about you save that for one of your little tattooed millionaire solo albums there bruce i'm I'm sure steve harris was like are you sure you want to sing a song about what's this lyric then in the misty dawn the night is fading fast right Coming out far away as the vapor trails a line. No, you can't sing that. That's not okay. Can we put in a demon or something, you know, and, and kind of go from there? But, like, nope. And that's what we get. We get coming home, can, which is. Uh, can you uh, sing about demons? The kids like demons. <laughs> he puts his hand in his mouth and goes, uh, Adrian, I think he's singing about being naked in the plane again. <laughs> it's a fantastic song that is utterly ridiculous, and I love it. All right. I don't think this particular musical instrument was ever included, uh, I could be wrong though, on an Iron Maiden album. But, all right. Our trivia question that I brought up earlier. The man who invented the burglar alarm, or as it's listed here, as the signaling apparatus, also invented a musical instrument. What is the name of that musical instrument? And then by proxy, that'll also be the guy's name. So I, I'm going to go out on a, on a limb. I'm pretty sure I know this one. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I'm going to preface my answer by saying this. If the security alarm in my car had been called a, what's it called? A signal? Signaling apparatus. A signaling apparatus. Maybe some of my stereos would not have been stolen when I was a teenager. Right. Instead of me just reaching out the window and bleeping the alarm off while someone ran off with my Pioneer. But I'm, I'm going to guess that this is Mr. Theremin. Yes. Yeah. Uh, our friend Leon Theremin invented the burglar alarm, and then using that same kind of motion detector technology that he invented, invented the theremin, which is the kind of musical instrument. Uh, as the joke goes, is I have a theremin that I'm trying to sell. I, I haven't touched it in years. 
<laughs> they're really neat and for a while they were like the idea was that they were the first sort of electronic instrument that could be used as part of a symphony mm-hmm. because they were similar to stringed instruments in their sound profile then they started to get used to make special effect noises and or music for 1950s sci-fi films yep. and that's kind of where they stayed have you ever seen one in real life yeah i've saw the led zeppelin tribute band that used one Oh, I saw one when I saw, for, for those of us in the audience who remember me ma- mentioning Pirubu, when Pirubu plays, they have a theremin player as part of their band as well. Yep. He also invented the Rhythm Con, which was the first drum machine. That was in 1931. And he also came up with that method. I mean, leave it to the Soviets, right? He came up with that method of eavesdropping where you shoot an infrared beam at the window and it picks up the sound vibrations from people talking in the room. Yeah, that was him. The worst part was you could point it at the window, but the sound you'd hear would be like, <laughs> it's hard to make out what the guy's saying. Sounds like a theremin. Leave it to me. I'm, I'm eavesdropping on the one person that owns a theremin, right? Damn it. Damn. Killed by irony. All right. But that is going to wrap up this week's show. We will see you back here in seven days. Say good night, Jeff. Good night, Jeff. Bye, guys. Hey, thanks for listening to Twibbly, or This Week Was Way Better Last Year. Special thanks to James Coster for our theme music. You can find us and message us on Instagram and Facebook using TWWWBLY. If you have friends, you should tell them about our show. And if you don't have friends, tell the Loch Ness Monster or Bigfoot. <laughs>